Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm John from Avoidus. How did oil, that black gold that we've come to depend on in our daily lives, dominate U.S. domestic and international affairs? How did Iran and Saudi Arabia come to emerge as regional and global forces? Here with us to answer these questions is Andrew Scott Cooper. Andrew Scott Cooper is a historian and commentator on U.S.-Iran relations, global energy markets, and geopolitical risk. He's a contributing columnist with Foreign Policy Magazine and The Guardian, and is the author of The Oil Kings, How the U.S., Iran, and Saudi Arabia Changed the Balance of Power in the Middle East. He's also the author of a new book called The Fall of Heaven, The Pahlavis in the Last Days of Imperial Iran, which he discussed at the Nixon Presidential Library on September 19, 2016. Andrew Scott Cooper, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, why did you decide to embark on, the, on a project of writing a book about this complicated and very timely subject on the Middle East? Well, after 9-11, I wanted to contribute in some way to public dialogue on the issue of the U.S. role in the Middle East because I feel like it's, it's been, it's perhaps the dominant issue of our time. Um, but I wanted to uh, do something different. I, I wanted to find my own area of research. And I was always interested in the Iranian Revolution. I was always interested in, um, in the Shah. I grew up in the 1970s, and the revolution was the big event of, of that period, even in New Zealand. And uh, I also became very interested in 2006 in the issue of rising oil prices, and I began to wonder how the oil markets could have affected stability in the Middle East and in Iran, which is a major oil producer, uh, in the 1970s. And so to sort of test my thesis, um, I looked at issues of oil pricing and production and to my surprise found that there was actually a direct linkage between um, sudden movements in the oil markets and instability in Iran in 1977 to 79. Yes, your, your story begins with the Shah of Iran, and you mentioned that Western military planners called the Persian Gulf one big gasoline bomb. Uh, what was Gulf policy before President Nixon came to office in 1969? So for the previous century, the British had really been responsible for safeguarding the Persian Gulf and they had a, a small naval presence there, but that was enough to secure the area and send a message to the Soviets. But starting in the uh, in sort of 1968 period, uh, the British were experiencing a financial crisis, and they made the decision to withdraw from east of Suez and to pull out of the Persian Gulf. And that presented the incoming president, Richard Nixon, with a real strategic um, problem, challenge. Because the U.S., as you know, at that time was very much involved in Southeast Asia. And here you had the possibility of a power vacuum opening up on the other side of the continent in Southwest Asia. So the question that Nixon and his advisors had to grapple with, and they did grapple with over the first two years of his presidency, is do we cede power to the Shah of Iran. Is, is the Shah of Iran capable of filling this void? Because the Shah wanted to. I was surprised when I read the archives from that period that, that there, were, there was a lot of hesitation on the part of Defense Department officials in particular as to whether Iran had the um, ability to fill Great Britain's role. Why give it to, you know, why give it to solely Iran? Or not give it solely to Iran, why give the preponderance 
of power in the Gulf to Iran versus the Saudi Arabia or some of the smaller Gulf states. So Iran was the uh, uh, had the largest population. It had um, a, a very strong industrial manufacturing base. It was a land bridge between east and west. It was perfectly situated, but also there was a feeling in 1969 when Nixon comes in that the Shah had really stabilized the country and that under his leadership, Iran was moving forward and was modernizing and in a, in a Western, Western, westerly direction. And it seemed as though Iran, because its economy was booming, they had a, a, a sort of pro-Western leader in power and he wanted to fulfill the vacuum. He uh, filled the vacuum. He wanted to um, build up Iranian power and eventually project Iranian power throughout the region. So Iran was the natural candidate. None of the other countries in the region were capable of it. I mean, Saudi Arabia at that time lacked the population. They were really unable to defend themselves. And under the um, um, by the sort of end of second year of Nixon's presidency the decision has been made for Iran to be the senior partner um, with Saudi Arabia as the junior partner in terms of safeguarding this whole area. And of course, as you point out, um, the area was, it was very volatile and you had all that oil. And because US oil production peaks in 1970 and then starts to decline, can't meet up with growing demand at home, uh, the U.S. has to find a way to safeguard the oil and safeguard the region from possible Soviet encroachment. Now, how did um, how did the um, you know the Shah was key in assisting um, Pakistan? You write that the Shah was key to assisting Pakistan during the Indo-Pakistani War of 1971. Um, can you can you describe how he was key? Uh, to this initiative, and uh, and how was he key? To, how was he key to ultimately, um, you know, being pivotal to Nixon's trip to China in 1972 as a result? Uh, the Shah plays a very interesting role um, um, in this in, in, in this entire period because he becomes, in a way, the go-to guy in the region. Nixon and Kiss President Nixon has an excellent relationship with the Shah. And Secretary Kissinger is very impressed with the Shah too. And he becomes someone who they can go to to get things done. For example, when, when um, the Indo-Pakistani war, they need to find a way to get weaponry to Pakistan to prevent the wholesale collapse of their ally. And the Shah is the one who says, well, let me move some of the material I already have in Iran to Pakistan, and then you can replenish my stocks later. And he does the same actually with South Vietnam and he does the same with Turkey. Iran in this time emerges as a very important country for Nixon and Kissinger because when in the wake of with the Vietnam War ongoing the Congress of course is becoming more isolationist. The American public are becoming more isolationist and um, that constrains their ability to um, engage in a, a really forward-thinking foreign policy. The Indo-Pakistani episode is interesting because that's the first time where Nixon and Kissinger lean on the Shah and he's able to help them with the deal. And that encourages them to keep going back to him. The Shah had 
a very, I think, enlightened policy towards China. He actually supported U.S. engagement with China and um, uh, was close to the regional leaders in Pakistan, for example. So the Shah, uh, the Shah had sent his sister Ashraf to China. The Empress visited to China uh, on separate missions for him. And there was a lot of um, backroom diplomacy going back and forth. And the transcripts that we have show that the Shah was fully committed to US-China rapprochement. Now, interestingly enough, uh, the transcripts that we have also show that, that Nick, so when Kissinger is talking to the Chinese, he says to them, you know, Iran is very important in the region now, and the Chinese agree with him. So even though you have a, a communist regime in China, and the Shah, of course, is, a, is a, an emperor, um, the issue of, of monarchy versus um, um, sort of atheistic dictatorship is, is not a, at all a concern for them. They see the Shah as a stabilizing presence in the region as, as he becomes the centurion of the Persian Gulf, and the Chinese are very much supportive of that. They see him as, with the Americans, they see him as a block on the um, Soviet encroachment and the rise of radicalism in the region. Iran's a diverse country, um, many different groups of people. Uh, the Shah is a monarch. Uh, how, why, were the, why is the Nixon administration so confident that he could keep, he could hold the line in Iran? They believe that in 1963, there had been an uprising by someone, a fellow called Ayatollah Khomeini, which most people are not familiar, outside, non-Iranians are not familiar with this episode. The Shah had decided to modernize Iran and he launched a series of very progressive initiatives. Khomeini led the fundamentalist branch of Shiism and he essentially launches a power play to try and overthrow the Shah to prevent the breakup of the landed estates. And the mullahs, of course, were big landholders. The Shah... Has a, there's a crackdown in Iran, the Shah emerges stronger than ever, and he, he takes control, he establishes executive authority at this stage. So although there's a parliament and a prime minister and a cabinet, the Shah makes it clear he's the one who's going to be doing most of the decision-making, especially in foreign policy. The Shah loved foreign policy, he loved strategy, and this is one thing that, that he and Richard Nixon had in common, and it's really wonderful reading the transcripts when they are together. Um, in 1967, Nixon made, uh, in April 67, Nixon visited, made an, a tour of Asia. And he really, really wanted to go to Tehran to see the Shah. He had met the Shah in 1953, in December 53, and they had stayed in touch sporadically. But uh, Nixon was out of power. And later on, when he was in the presidency, he made a comment to one of his aides and said, you know, the only two foreign leaders who treated me with respect when I was out of power uh, was de Gaulle of France and the Shah of Iran. And to him, that really counted for loyalty and friendship. So he visited Tehran in 67. Now, it was ostensibly going to be just a uh, having tea in the palace for half an hour and a, a sort of reacquainting, reacquainting with each other. But what happens is much more. They end up sitting there for a couple of hours and they end up talking about this whole challenge of, of, of US policy in Southeast Asia, of a power vacuum developing in Southwest Asia. 
And if you listen to the Iranian side, they will, they will claim credit for the Guam Doctrine. They like to say, um, well, you know, we were the ones who, who encouraged um, uh, President Nixon to, to start thinking about the region in a different way. You know, that, that is, that's from the Iranian side. But certainly that conversation with the Shah seems to have impacted Nixon's strategic thinking on the Persian Gulf. And certainly he leaves Iran, he makes a speech back in, Cal back in the United States that suggests that he sees the Shah as a, a partner, as someone the U.S. can do business with, and that he wants the, he would, he's interested in the Shah taking on more responsibility in the region. Would you say that, you know, you brought up the Soviet threat on the Persian Gulf, um, you also brought up uh, the idea that um, the Shah's business, is, one of his biggest businesses is oil, and one of the America's biggest concerns is energy consumption. Uh, would you say U.S. foreign policy and Iran policy, for that matter, would you say it was more tilted towards strategy, a political strategy in the region, or were, there, were, were economic considerations more paramount? That is a question that I think scholars will be always debating and still true to an extent today. But certainly at that time, energy consumption had emerged as a real issue in the early 70s. Um, I think that it doesn't become the, the pivotal issue until 1973, the Arab-Israeli war is followed by the oil embargo and suddenly the United States is left bereft in the region and is left totally exposed to the intentions of Arab oil producers. Now, the Shah doesn't participate in the oil embargo, but he does um, play the key role, I would argue, in the resulting oil shock where OPEC meets at the end of 1973 and decides to jack up the price of oil. This was really shocking, and the correspondence with Nixon shows the president very alarmed that the Shah has, has sort of stepped in and made this decision. Now, the Shah's argument would have been, I've been a loyal ally. I did not participate in the embargo. I helped you during the Arab-Israeli war. I helped stabilize the region. And I should get something in return for that. Now, um, the decision to double the price of oil is also, I, I argue, is a consequence of Watergate. The Shah smells weakness in the White House, and he, he senses there's a power vacuum in foreign policy, that Nixon is distracted at home. And while Nixon is distracted, the president's distracted, the United States is distracted with this domestic conflict, this is the perfect time for him to um, extract this massive concession on oil pricing. You write that American oil imports from Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia totaled 13.5 million in 1970 and rose sixfold in 1971 to 76.8 million and surpassed 79 million in the first months of 1972. Um, despite the fact that the Shah was given ponderance of power in the Persian Gulf, despite the fact that we were uh, ex-importing oil from Iran, why this new relationship with this warming up of relations with Saudi Arabia, and how did it affect our relationship with the Shah? So the, the Iran was not actually a major exporter of oil to the United States at this point, partly because they produce heavy crude, and the Saudis produce light crude, and light crude is much much 
more preferable for U.S. domestic consumption. And they haven't, you know, the Shah's industrializing his country, so he needs a lot of oil at home for that. The Saudis have the largest reserves in the world at that time. So Nixon understands he has to develop closer ties with the Saudis, but his sympathies are with the Shah. And he understands the Saudis are incapable of defending the region. And the Shah, on the other hand, has the stronger military, he has the stronger political structure in place to act as the, the sort of um, the guardian of the Gulf, as they called it. So um, the, the conflict here, the contradiction here, is that you have Iran, which is a Shia Muslim country, the only Shia Muslim dominant Muslim country, being asked to take over responsibility for the security of a Sunni Muslim country where the holy places in Islam are, are placed. And strategically, that makes sense on paper. But when you get into the history and the culture and the religion, there are obviously going to be conflicts. And it seems as though the Saudis were really not happy with this arrangement, but also felt they didn't have a lot of choice at the time. But in 73, with the oil embargo, you see King Faisal challenging the US. And, and he actually pulls off something very interesting. Although the Saudis end up caving on, uh, folding on the oil embargo in this March 74, the Saudis end up winning, winning key con concessions from the Nixon administration because they understand that the US is very vulnerable to uh, cut off, possible cutoff on the oil supply. So King Faisal sort of out, he in a way outmaneuvers the Shah to establish a, his own separate defense relationship with the United States. This is all happening against the, the background of Watergate. And I think that we, we sometimes underestimate the impact that national local politics can have on foreign policy and strategy. Certainly at this time in early 74, the Nixon administration is losing ground overseas. The president doesn't have that influence that he had pre-Watergate. And so leaders like the Shah are not as inclined to listen to him and respect him. In fact, if anything, they're taking advantage of his domestic weakness at home to sort of extract concessions and also, in some cases, cause trouble. One of the things that happened in the mid-1970s in this warming of U.S.-Saudi relations was the uh, defense relationship, as you mentioned, between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and the recycling of petrodollars. Can you talk about how that system evolved? Uh, the recycling of petrodollars is a, is a, a, a strategy that is put in place, it's really not a carefully thought through strategy. The thinking was, okay, we can't control oil prices going up, but let's try and get those, let's try and get our oil dollars back in the form of, of defense expenditures and commercial business arrangements with the oil producing countries. So there was supposedly, and Kissinger was, the, I think, the biggest advocate of this, that we would pay higher in oil prices, but we would develop trade and defense business closer relationships with these producers, and that that would flow back into the domestic U.S. economy. Um, that's not quite how it works. 
if anything, um, it's not clear that U.S. industry, well, the defense industry certainly benefits, but the civilian economy in the U.S. is really hampered or hurt by the high oil prices. So this is a, a policy that uh, Secretary Kissinger is very strongly supportive of, but really by, as we get into the Ford administration, by 1976, hawks within the Ford administration uh, telling President Ford this recycling of petrodollars business is, is not working and we really need to start standing up to the oil producers because it's hurting the US economy and hurting the US economy means it hurts your potential to win election in 1976. Overall, how does um, Gulf uh, policy change between the Nixon and Ford administrations? It, in terms of in terms of the relationship with the US and Iran, it deteriorates. The Shah's the Shah has this what he believes he has a close relationship with President Nixon. And they can do business together. But when Nixon is removed from the equation, the Shah does not have someone of equal stature that he can talk to. And Gerald Ford is is a you know it, it can is very good with local politics, but Gerald Ford does not have that geopolitical strategic background or frank frank interest, and he relies on Kissinger. The Shah's the Shah is not going to talk to Secretary Kissinger as an equal. We have Iranian archives that show he simply didn't take Kissinger as seriously as Secretary Kissinger thought he took himself in the relationship. So when you remove Nixon and you put Ford in. The Shah's confidence in the United States really starts to go into a uh, is 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 affected negatively, and uh, he, he starts to view the United States as a waning power. With after Watergate, that um, Iran has to really now start moving on its own and not rely on American power, and that leads to complications because he overreaches uh, at home and. Um, Iranian domestic policy starts to, I think, spirals out of control sort of in that 75, 76 period. The economy spirals out of control. And the irony of the oil shock is that ostensibly the biggest benefactor of the oil shock, the Shah, ends up being the biggest loser because that, inf that sudden infusion of oil dollars, petrodollars into the Iranian economy causes high inflation, which in turn um, alienates the Iranian middle class and leads to a loss of support for the Shah. And that is the build-up to the Iranian revolution that uh, breaks out in 1978. You're author of this new book, The Fall of Heaven, which is a focus on the Shah. How do, how do you think events and US policies would have been different had the Shah been able to survive politically? The, when the Shah fell, there was a... a a huge power vacuum developed in the region. Um, I don't think it was fully understood or appreciated at the time. And certainly people couldn't look forward and see what was happening. There was a lot of, in some cases, relief in, in Western circles that the Shah had gone because he, they believed that he was a, a symbol of uh, a, you know, dictatorship and that 
he was uh, uh, had been tied in with 1953 and the U.S. overthrow of the Iranian government, etc. And there was a, a sense of national shame among some Americans towards the Shah. But when we look back now, we think that had the Shah survived that turmoil in 78, um, Iran would be the, uh, still the dominant country in the region, but it would have had close relationships. The Shah had close relationships with Saddam Hussein of Iraq, for example. He had good re working relationships with the Soviets. He was the linchpin to the stability in the region. And when he was removed, the region sort of flew apart. And I think that scholars today would look back and say that his collapse um, was really uh, precipitated the what we're seeing today in the region, which is this um, collapse of law and order throughout the, throughout the Middle East. And that we don't know what's going to fill the vacuum there, but something or someone will invariably fill it. Andrew Scott Cooper, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. For news and information about the life and legacy of President Nixon, please visit us at nixonfoundation.org. For the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm Jonathan Mavroidis signing off.